brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 580 WCHS, its employees, or WVRC Media. With the power of Peyton on your side, we have the courtroom experience that you need. We never give up. We're prepared to fight for your rights. When you need action, count on us. It's 821 and good Thursday morning to your rainy Thursday morning in the Kanawha Valley. I'm Jeff Jenkins with Tom Payton of the Payton Law Firm in Nitro, 304-345-5858. Tom is with us this morning to talk about the law with the Payton Law Firm in Nitro. Anything about the law and we're going to talk to Tom about that. And Tom's on the phone with us today. Tom, good morning. How you doing? I'm doing well, Jeff. Sorry I couldn't be there. I had a conflict this morning. A meeting to start right after the show, so I've got to stick to home base here in Nitro. Well, that's all right. That's all right. Uh, yeah, the, uh, we're got some rain here this morning, so things are kind of slow moving anyway. <laughs> I think on right. the travel. I'm concerned about even making it with the uh, when there's rain, there are wrecks on I sixty four, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. But glad glad to be here on the phone at least. Um, maybe we'll get some calls this morning. I, you know, one of the things that. It's really important in this state. We've got, I noticed, I think there were oh, close to 40 people maybe that spoke, if I read the article correctly, about this campus carry bill that's going through the legislature. And, um, you know, it's interesting. And I guess what, you know, that's to explain the campus carry bill. So right now, as I understand the law, well, maybe there isn't one. So that universities like West Virginia, Marshall, West Virginia State, they have rules that prohibit the uh, possession of firearms on campus, even if you have a concealed carry permit, as I understand it. Uh, but it's not 
illegal. It's not a law that says, you know, you're, you're a, you violate a criminal law if you carry a firearm on campus. And so what's running through the legislature right now is a campus carry bill that would, as I understand it, prohibit college colleges or universities uh, from making those rules or enforcing them that would prevent certain individuals, students, I think faculty as well, from, from having firearms on campus with multiple restrictions. I think the law as presented would require the person to have a concealed carry permit and then, you know, for example, uh, football stadiums, I think, are excluded or could be excluded so the university could still prevent individuals from bringing firearms into a sporting event. There was a couple other exemptions. Universities have to provide some kind of lockbox or safe place, as I understand it, to put someone's firearm if they need to enter a building where it's permissible to prevent uh, possession of uh, firearms. But I think almost universally during the public comment period yesterday, except for maybe two, somebody from the Civil Defense Fund or something to that effect in the National Rifle Association, everyone else opposed the bill. But as our legislature lately has, has done, uh, almost universally ignored the majority of the public comment and passed the passed it anyway. I guess it'll go back before the House or something maybe, and we'll see where it goes. But it's interesting. We'll see how that one falls out. I'm sure it's probably going to pass and be up to the governor to decide. Then maybe be over. I mean, they can override his veto with the supermajority. But um, it's interesting because across the country. They were having some significant modifications in the laws about uh, you know, rising from the Second Amendment ruling that came about just this past summer in June, and that was the Bruin decision, which overturned a New York State law, I believe. I don't think it was a city of New York only, but uh, that was a law that had been on the books since I think the early 1900s, maybe 1913, that in essence said that in New York, to carry a uh, to get a concealed weapons permit, basically, uh, you don't just have to meet some background checks. You also have some, some evidence, or there has to be some kind of finding that you have a particular need to have a firearm for self-defense. I don't know what that is. We don't have a similar law in West Virginia. I presume it could be maybe you've got somebody you're worried that's a threat to you or your family in some form, and 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 maybe that's justification. But the U.S. Supreme Court struck down that rule or that law said it was unconstitutional, and I think five or six other states had the same law, so those are now unconstitutional. But the fallout is that Justice Thomas wrote that opinion and basically provided a new analysis for courts to apply when they're considering Second Amendment cases in relation to gun restrictions. And there is some language in that opinion about for a, a regulation or a law to restrict guns and be constitutional, it has to have a historical analog or a, some basis in the history of the Second Amendment um, that is similar or comports with regulation of firearms back uh when the, when the Second Amendment came about and then when it was applied to the states. That's like 1791 and 1868. So what you've seen 
after that, our lower court's trying to apply that analysis to various different firearm restrictions. And you see courts now going back to the late 1700s and the 1800s and trying to figure out, well, what was the, what type of regulations did they have then and how does that apply to, is the, the restrictions today, are they synonymous with those goals back then? And of course, as you can imagine, um, you know, in 1791, uh, some may argue with this, that firearms were much more important in, in daily life just getting by because it was much more rural. You couldn't call 911. Uh, you probably needed to use a firearm to feed your family or yourself via hunting. And so, you know, there, there were much, I would say the regulations back then were much uh, more liberalized to the extent that, you know, to remove somebody's ability to possess a firearm was much more significant than it is today. So what you've got is courts trying to apply that to modern-day restrictions. For example, uh, one court in Texas has found that now folks that are charged with a felony, not convicted yet, but charged, so they're on bond, for example, laws that prohibit them to, from possessing firearms may not be valid, which is uh, significant. Um, but perhaps the more important one, and, and was ruled upon by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which you know, that's above the lowest level, that's the mid-level U.S. Court of Appeals. So that's the one before you get to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Fifth Circuit, so it's not West Virginia. We're the Fourth Circuit, but it it could be controlling law. It's certainly persuasive right now. But what the Fifth Circuit found is that <clears throat> under the new case authored by Justice Thomas, that individuals that are under restraining orders for domestic violence um, cannot be prohibited from possessing firearms, and that's an extremely uh, I don't know, I'm sure it will be appealed, but that's a that's an extreme um, interpretation of that Bruin decision, but its practical uh, effect, I'm not sure how it's going to fall out, but, you know, West Virginia has a, a and it may be similar in other states, probably is a you know, domestic violence. Um, we have a really good system. You know, it's not foolproof, of course, but you know, if somebody is a victim of domestic violence, they have a way to go get a restraining order without notifying the perpetrator initially. And so, you know, they can go on their own to a magistrate, uh, fill out a petition under oath. And if the magistrate finds that that's sufficient to warrant domestic violence, then the magistrate can, for example, remove the uh, perpetrator from the home and allow the abused person back into the home they can control custody of children, use of property, and, of course, um, the ability of a person to possess firearms and to stop, you know, restraining order, keeping that person from harassing or usually even contacting the victim. And then there's a hearing within 10 days before the family court where the, where the alleged perpetrator has a right to be heard. But if the protective order or the restraining order stays in place, it's 90 days or six months, and... You know, these, these domestic violence cases run the gamut from 
cases where there's no physical contact to cases where a person is a just a consistently battered victim. But in West Virginia, what happens is when you have a, if you're the perpetrator or the or the person who's being restrained, you have to turn in all your firearms to the sheriff or another responsible person. You have to certify under oath that you've done that. And that's temporary. It's only during the time period that the restraining order is in place. But this, this Fifth Circuit case now has found that under the U.S. Constitution, that restriction on the possession of firearms and under that restraining order is is unconstitutional. So I don't know that I'm kind of monitored here in Putnam County, and I'm not sure how the sheriffs are handling this, but, you know, right now, I'm sure Kanawha County, there's a significant number of them. I'm not sure how many in Putnam County, but, the, you know, the firearms have been surrendered by individuals that are not permitted to possess them under this domestic violence protective order law. And so I would be curious to see how sheriffs are handling this scenario because one court's now said it's unconstitutional to prevent those folks from possessing firearms. So I suspect it's going to get up to the Supreme Court at some point, but it's going to take a while, and it may take a ruling that's contrary. It may require the Fourth Circuit to rule something different than the Fifth Circuit to get it back up there, but it's you're going to see some more of these across the country as a result of applying this analysis. And so we'll see, it'll be interesting, it'll be next couple of years probably, see if the Supreme Court revisits that to clarify what they meant by doing a historical analysis back to the late 1700s and the 1800s because potentially you could have a significant impact. I mean, you can imagine some of these domestic violence uh, cases are, are people using firearms, shooting firearms, threatening others with firearms, and if there isn't a criminal charge to go with it but just a restraining order, then right now, as the law stands, you, know, you can't prevent them from possessing that firearm as a result of the restraining order. So we'll see how that falls out. Hopefully, I don't know that anybody's returning firearms in West Virginia to the respondents, but that may be a matter of time because eventually someone's going to believe that they should have a right to continue to possess firearms under this scenario and they're going to file a lawsuit and we'll see how that comes about. So there would have to be a Tom, there would have to be a, yeah, I was going to ask, cause that's interesting to see how that would kind of impact since it's kind of still in the, the, the rulings taking place. So how does that affect states? Right. So that are opposite. What you would, yeah, it's fifth circuit and it, it's, 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 persuasive on courts here for sure. I mean, you could, it would be a fairly simple case. Uh, now, it depends on whether, I mean, somebody's got to want to, quote, rock the boat and probably file a lawsuit against the sheriff to demand their return of their firearms. Um, but they could file a lawsuit, for example, and just, you know, adopt uh, almost universally the reasoning that was in this Fifth Circuit case and then have uh, the U.S. District Court here in uh, Charleston or Huntington decide it, for example. Now, but you got to have somebody I don't expect, uh, and uh, you know, I, I don't know what their attitude is. I know uh, Putnam County Sheriff is certainly a definitely a pro-Second Amendment person, but I don't think he's out there returning these firearms to folks that are subject to restraining orders. Um, 
So I don't think that's happening voluntarily. Uh, it could be an interpretation by sheriff, but I don't think they're going to take that risk. But So it's going to involve somebody filing a lawsuit. And you know, there's there's good facts, and ba- good facts and bad facts for these type cases. Now, I'll tell you, the Fifth Circuit case, the person who, what happened was he was convicted of illegally possessing a firearm while he had one of these restraining orders because it's a violation of federal law. And he appealed that, and that's where they said, well, the criminal charge isn't good because they can't prohibit him from possessing firearms. Now, this fellow was not a good actor. He had other charges. He had shot, I mean, he had taken a firearm and, and you know, I think shot at people in public, people he didn't know, drive-by type things. I mean, he was not a good person. That didn't matter in the analysis. So when you, you know, they still ruled that it was unconstitutional. So, you know, if anybody's ever been involved in the domestic violence system, Sometimes the behavior of the, we'll just call him the quote abuser, is is not as serious. You know, it doesn't seem that serious. It's putting somebody in fear of their safety. So sometimes it can be as much as yelling at a person or or you know psychological type abuse, and they still have their firearm removed. So it seems like somebody like that would have a better case of being able to retain a firearm versus somebody who uh, you know grabbed a shotgun uh, in a domestic situation and threatened somebody with it. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be, you know, those underlying facts are not really to be considered under this analysis and weren't considered by the Fifth Circuit. They, even though this guy was a pretty bad actor, they, they still ruled in his favor because that's just not part of the analysis. Hmm, I would imagine here in Kanawha, I would imagine, Tom, in Kanawha County that, I mean, I couldn't imagine how many guns there are related to DMVs. Oh, yeah. I mean, DVPs, DVPs, I I would say they generally have hearings, like Putnam County, I think they have a whole day of hearings every week, at least once a week, and they're usually a half hour apart. So there are are a good many of these. I don't know the stats. And, of course, uh, Kanawha County is going to be exponentially higher. But every case where somebody has a domestic violence protective order, restraining order entered against them, every case the respondent is supposed to and is legally required to fill out a form listing all the firearms they own or possess, and then they have to certify uh, that they've surrendered those to the sheriff or that they can designate another responsible adult and certify they that's, that's you know, somebody who's legally able to possess them. So there's probably, you know, I don't know how many get to the sheriff versus uh, other adults, but, uh, yeah, there's got to be a good many. And, and then, um, you know, so I, I don't, if somebody comes and demands their gun back, I mean, the sheriff's got to make a decision. I'm sure probably they'd take the position no and then make the person file a lawsuit. But it'll be interesting to see. Um, I expect that something will be filed probably. This Fifth Circuit case is rather new. I think it's a couple weeks old, maybe three weeks old. So we'll see if uh, that comes to fruition. We'll keep our eye open to see if anybody files a lawsuit. they probably filed in U.S. District Court somewhere, you know, and trying to declare the state law unconstitutional hmm. okay that's interesting uh tom we're going to take our break okay all right uh tom payton with the, tom payton with the payton law firm in nitro on the phone with us today it's eight thirty-eight. Uh, tom talking about the law and we'll talk about a couple more things uh uh that are moving through and uh something i want to bring up to tom too so all of that coming up thanks for tuning in this morning 
to the Payton Law Firm in Nitro here on 580 WCH. Science proves quality sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed senses your movements and automatically adjusts to help keep you both effortlessly comfortable. And it's temperature balancing, so you stay cool. So you're at your best for yourself and those you care about most. Life-changing sleep, only from Sleep Number. It's our President's Day special. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Science proves quality sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed senses your movements and automatically adjusts to help keep you both effortlessly comfortable. And it's temperature balancing, so you stay cool. So you're at your best for yourself and those you care about most. Life-changing sleep, only from Sleep Number. It's our President's Day special. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. We are there for you, to care for you at the health plan. We are here for you. At the Health Plan, we are here for you. And that means something. It means we're headquartered right here in West Virginia, providing exceptional health coverage, local customer service, and putting your family first when it matters most. The Health Plan, we are here for you. Ready to stop dreaming about that new car and drive it instead? Make it happen with an auto loan from Members Choice West Virginia Federal Credit Union. At Members Choice West Virginia Federal Credit Union, you can get rates as low as 3.25% APR during their special auto loan financing promotion happening now. So don't wait. Finance or refinance your car today at MCWV. To apply, stop into 201 Ohio Avenue in Charleston or visit MCWV online at MembersChoiceWV.com. Loans are subject to credit approval. Additional restrictions may apply. With the power of Peyton on your side We have the courtroom experience that you need We never give up We're prepared to fight for your rights When you need action, count on us Put the power of Peyton on your side And it's 841 on 580 WCHS, the voice of Charleston. Jeff Jenkins with you this morning. And Tom Payton of the Payton Law Firm in Nitro. Tom is on the phone this morning. First of all, Tom, I wanted to ask you, too, about uh, about your dad. His, uh, two, uh, his, his two-game road swing in the Big 12 through the state of Texas didn't turn out too well. No, that's probably why I'm here today. Uh, <laughs> He's convalescing from that trip, I believe. So. Is he? <laughs> so he had a, I mean, good time. Uh, Texas, you know, with a packed house, it's just, you know, to lose by 34 is uh, not the way you want to do it. And they put up a fight against Baylor, but, yeah, disappointing. But uh, he may be back back next week to tell his tales. But, yeah, he was there right behind the bench for West Virginia, and then I think he stayed in the team hotel, you know, overnight when they were down on the, Texas stretch, so uh, sure it was pretty somber. Well, I saw yeah. him. I saw him. Uh, I think it was the Texas game. <laughs> that thing got so because he had on like the goldest of gold yellow pullover, right? That's and, right. Yeah, and and then I saw him, and I saw him. Well, I saw him in the Texas game, and then about six minutes, four minutes left, I didn't see him anymore. <laughs> right. He may well, have lost he, a little early. 
he complained he couldn't see over the players' heads or something, so he had to go stand a little bit. But I would say that in the Texas game, he wanted to go. He probably went back as far as he could in that concourse and still see the court because uh, <laughs> if you're a Mountaineer fan, you didn't really want to show yourself in that game. But it's probably going to – we're hoping it gets better. We're up to the Texas Tech game Saturday. So I still think if the Mountaineers can get, uh, you know, three wins, even one win in the tournament included, I think they make the – the tournament, but uh, got to win three or five. I agree with you, right? Yeah. That's what I think. And if they can get that, I think they'll make it. But it's hard to tell when you're coming with that close. It depends on what other teams do as well. So keep our fingers crossed. Now, Tom, I've got back house, uh, go this Saturday. So yeah, it's going to yeah going to be sellout again, which is amazing. It's amazing. Right. Let me ask. We talked last week about some bills, and you may not know about this bill because I just heard about it yesterday. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a bill that has to do with liability amounts for school boards. So, and I'm I'm actually working on this story. Uh, we received some information from some county school boards that. That Brim, which is the uh, which is the insurance uh, agency that you know covers, as you know, uh, Board of Risk and Insurance Management, that right. that covers state agencies, they have alerted school boards that their costs uh, for their premiums are going to go up uh, more than a hundred percent in some in most cases because it's a pool coverage and there's been some big judgments against some school boards. So now you have these smaller school boards that are going to see, I mean, their payments jump by, you know, more than a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now there's a there's a bill, and I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. It's in the Senate Judiciary Committee that I think would cap uh, some, uh, if you're suing a school board, maybe cap it at a million dollars. Uh, and so I don't, again, that's just, that's not made an agenda yet. It's in the Senate Judiciary Committee. And, uh, that wouldn't affect, that wouldn't have an immediate effect, you know, on what Brim is going to require these school boards who really have no other choice than to pay the money. Um, right. you, you know, but it might have, it may have a future, may have a future effect because I think some counties have had some big awards go against them for different things that have happened in the school system. And that's, a, that's impacted, you know, the, uh, the BRIM coverage and what they're going to, you know, demand from school boards to pay them for their insurance coverage. Right. Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with that bill. And, of course, BRIM is uh, the state branch that handles those claims. They're, of course, they're backed by an insurance company. Usually AIG, I think, has the um, has the coverage on those ultimately. But, yeah, I haven't seen that. The uh, Of course, a lot of these claims – you know, you talk about claims against the state for injuries, for example, and claims against school board for injuries. It, it, you know, it almost seems they could internalize that and and have a attorney general's office defend them or something, rather than incur all these defense costs uh, for private attorneys that charge by the hour, and then all these insurance costs as well. But um, no, well, I, of course, if they're talking about caps, which is probably what they're talking about. You know, I don't generally like those. And, and, of course, if I look at if I look at it from my standpoint, I say, well, <clears throat> why do we have all these claims and why are we paying so much money? Well, it's because something's going wrong. And so, you know, it doesn't solve the problem in the immediate future, but what is, why are we having so many claims and having so many people 
either get physically or emotionally hurt that we're having to pay these claims. I mean, there's a underlying problem there. So, um, but that doesn't, that doesn't help in the short term as far as premiums and that kind of thing. Although I'm not sure anything will help in the short term in that regard. So we'll, uh, we'll see, but I haven't seen the, trying to find it right now. It looks like maybe depends on what type of claims they are. And then maybe there'll be a cap somewhere between, it's like a million dollars or something to that effect. So, uh, um, yeah. might be less than that. I'm seeing $500,000 in some, uh, some parts of the bill. But so I guess the way Brim operates, right, uh, they go out and they, they kind of go out and, you know, they, they contract with insurance companies. Right. Right. Yeah. Like if I have a client who was injured in some manner at school and we allege that it was, you know, just getting injured at school doesn't make him responsible. There's got to be some negligence on the part of, you know, an agent of the school, a teacher or principal or something like that. And so um, if I notify the school board of, of a claim like that, they just forward my letter on to, quote, Brim, which in in recent times, I believe is, you know, I get contacted them by an AIG insurance adjuster. That's a private insurance company. And then they adjust the claim. And the state reimburses and pays premiums for that that coverage. So, um, but yeah, so under that example, I mean, if you're getting a flood of claims for kids being abused in the classroom or you know, chronic injuries from some type of uh, you know behavior during school time, or you know, I've seen there's some cases being filed there filed out there about bullying, where it's student on student, but the schools fail to take proper action to prevent it. I mean. I, all those things need the underlying problems need to be addressed. Uh, I would say not just capping what somebody can recover if they're hurt. And and of course I'm a proponent. I think juries usually do a reasonable job of assessing one whether somebody's at fault, and then if they are, you know what compensation the injured person is entitled to. So when you start limiting that, I think you start shifting shifting that power back to large corporate interests, insurance companies, or uh, big government interests. So, you know, I don't think CAPS is the way I would try and uh, resolve the problem. I think you would look at uh, the underlying issues. Why are we having so many claims and why are they so high? And how can we enact some comprehensive plan that will help resolve these problems in the long term? But, um, sounds like they're going for an easier fix if it will fix it i mean you're still going to have a lot of claims and just putting a cap on there doesn't necessarily mean it's going to bring the premiums down either right uh, so we'll see sometimes we'll caps see. make cases go to trial more often and you incur more lawyer's fees on the defense side because you know if, if there's if the risk is capped on one side of the equation like a person's hurt really bad, they get paralyzed or something, but there's some dispute about whether it was the school board's fault, and they might have damages of, you know, they might need future care of $5 million. Well, if the if the insurance carrier knows they can, they're never going to have to pay more than a million, then they'll just, you know, case will never settle. It'll roll through trial, and then, uh, you now the defense lawyers will get paid plenty to defend it. They get paid by the hour. Uh, some reasonable rate, but it's a lot of work. And so sometimes I'm not sure caps involve that much savings because you end up putting the money in 
defending cases uh, that would otherwise be settled earlier on. Um, but you know, but caps, you know, on, on their face, seem like they would save funds and may get some premiums down at some point. But uh, I doubt it has a great effect on the premiums that local boards are paying until they fix the underlying problems. I mean, that's the issue. A A51 on 580 WCHS, the voice of Charleston. Tom Payton with us at the Payton Law Firm in Nitro. And, Tom, you know, kind of this ongoing thing, I just, you know, a reminder of what went on here nine years ago with the water crisis. And, uh, you know, everybody, a lot of people watching the water, though the levels are low from what's, you know, coming down from East Palestine, Ohio, coming down the Ohio River, and now West Virginia American Water has, has hooked up their been in taking water in in Huntington from the from the and this just affects Huntington. That's all the water system that mm-hmm. uh, that affects. But they're getting it from the Guyandot River, and you know, just uh, yeah. I mean, it just brings back you know what you know, oh, yeah. you know from nine years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, that's the train derailment with the chemicals that spilled, and and yeah, it's well, they got the alternative so. Pulling out a guy and dot will solve the problem, I guess, for now, because they're getting it before it gets into the Ohio River, I guess, which is where the water spilled into. But um, I, th- I read there's already some claims filed, I think, um, regarding that derailment. I think they're filed over in Ohio. Like, the, the, it only, and, and Palestine, or East Palestine, wherever it is, Ohio, that's up near, um, Outside Weirton or Willing, right? Yeah, it's so, north of that. Yeah, it's north of that. Okay. Even. Yeah. But didn't actually spill into West Virginia, but has gone into the Ohio River, I think. And, I, and I, I was thinking about, and your dad would probably chime in on this too, but I'd heard a news story that Erin Brockovich had uh, come into the area. And, and I remember when she came into this area uh, after the uh, crisis, but it was local attorneys that, you know, ended up. You know, kind of carrying the day on, uh, you know, on on that whole, you know, on that whole. Situation. Yeah, they. I, I think Erin Brockovich. I don't know this one hundred percent for sure, but I'm pretty sure that she can be hired uh, by law firms as a. I mean, it's more of an advertising, marketing type tools. The way I view it. Um, I've never met her. I watched the Erin Brockovich movie when it came out, but. Um, yeah, I think, you know, she she comes in, but I suspect if you got behind the reason why she's in, she's funded by one of the, some national law firm that's in looking for uh, for cases. But I think, yeah, in the water crisis claim, there were some out-of-state law firms involved, but, you know, a lot of work was done by good local attorneys, and, you know, we were part of that group. Um, and I thought, in the end, did a really good job of, getting a resolution that helped a lot of different people across the spectrum. But yeah, I think there's already, I don't, I haven't heard of any lawyers based in West Virginia, but the, um, there've already been cases filed, you know, about exposure to chemicals and, and I don't know that they relate to the water system yet. Uh, I think they're more in relation to folks that live or work uh, on the land around the spill site. And, of course, it's still really early on. So, uh, in fact, I saw that, you know, initially there was a report of what chemicals were being hauled uh, by the train, and then the, later it came out there were actually, I think, three additional chemicals they hadn't disclosed initially or didn't know about for some reason. So, 
you're hearing the same thing about you know, material safety data sheets that show what kind of side effects these chemicals can have. And, and of course, a lot of the three new ones I saw, um, I'm not sure any of them, one of them might have been a carcinogen. Um, I think the other two uh, just could cause irritation, basically, eyes, nose, lungs, that kind of thing. So hopefully it doesn't have any long-term effects, but but uh, there's already been cases filed, so we'll, we'll kind of, if it affects West Virginians, other than the water, we'll, we'll kind of monitor that. I think right now on our side of the river, it's it's really just a water issue at this point. Hopefully the water company can uh, alleviate any real dangers. Yeah, yeah. It seems like they've been really seems like they've been really proactive and the state has and different things. So we'll continue to watch out because it's really kind of become a national story. Right. Oh yeah. Well I mean it's a huge spill. I had a case, um, you know, we do a decent number of uh, cases for railroad workers that get hurt. Uh, we've actually done some derailments with some crossing issues over the years where a train went off the rails for the employees that were on the train. Um, but, you know, they have, the railroad has their own employees as what they call claims agents, or they're essentially insurance adjusters for these claims. And, you know, I was dealing with a guy, well, he, <laughs> we actually resolved the case. I was waiting for the funds to come in. I was like, where is he? And he just ghosted me for a week and a half and he'd come up they flew him up from uh, i think georgia or florida you know one of i'm sure uh probably tens of uh, claims agents that were already on scene he was on scene the whole week at the at the derailment so uh, the railroad would be pretty proactive about it too on those derailments you remember, i don't know if you remember the it was a bad one up here <clears throat> i call it ventro hauler which is uh old route 35 outside st albans that was probably all in the late 90s maybe um and and railroad was pretty i mean they came in and set up a, a temporary building with the claims agent in it to you know get some minimal compensation to folks that have been displaced and and, and um of course try and get releases at the same time so they couldn't be sued afterward but um that you know they were the railroad was pretty good about getting in there and trying to help the people yeah so uh we've talked about a lot of different things uh here today firearms and train derailments, but a lot of what we do is civil litigation. So uh, folks that get hurt in car accidents, have a fall, uh, fighting against an insurance company about a coverage issue, that's kind of our bread and butter. We also do deeds, wills, and, and, and general practice if you have questions. But don't hesitate to contact us if you need some legal information. You can call us at the office here at 304-755-5556. And a real good way to get a hold of either dad or I um, is to send us an email through the website at paytonlawfirm.com. You can submit an email there and it goes right to our desk. And, you know, I've, I've responded to a multitude of emails this week from folks just giving them some information. And, and when we talk to you initially on any type of case, there's never a charge. And, of course, if we handle an injury case or a case against an insurance company, generally there's never a charge unless we recover on your behalf. Those are contingency fee cases. So, um, I know there's a lot of lawyers out there, but but we do a good job. We've been doing it for a long time, and we give your case personal attention. So all we ask is that if you have an injury or you have a family member that's been hurt in some way, that you consider giving us a call. And um, if you do, you won't regret it, my opinion. Yes, and, and as you mentioned, it's uh, never hurts just to make the call. 
Right, right. Yeah. Don't hesitate. I mean, it's, you forget when you've been practicing law for 20-some years that, you know, a lot of people get nervous talking to lawyers. It's kind of like, you know, when you think about going to the doctor or the dentist. But uh, we try and give common sense direction information to folks right here. So don't hesitate to ask. It's always better to ask beforehand because it's easier to keep folks from getting themselves in trouble than it is to get them out of trouble. So uh, it only takes a couple minutes to type out an email, and if it's not enough for the right information, we'll ask you for more and go from there. And you know, that first conversation doesn't cost a thing. It's right. just a little bit of time. Tom, have yourself a good day. Have a good meeting coming up. Appreciate it. You too, Jeff. All right. That's Tom Payton of the Payton Law Firm in Nitro. Once again, their number is 755 755- 5556, 5556, or PeytonLawFirm.com. Stay tuned. 5 Cross Lanes, a WVRC media station. We're proud to live here, too. From ABC News. I'm Derek Dennis, the EPA's top official, Michael Regan, in East Palestine, Ohio, today at the site of that toxic train derailment. Neighbors at a town hall last night saying they're getting sick with sore throats. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.